0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Back in February 2020, we were joined on the podcast by the historian Frank McDonough to discuss the first volume of his History of the Third Reich, The Hitler Years which ended after Germany's comprehensive military defeat of Poland in 1939. Since then, Frank has published the second volume of the Hitler years, and that's what he's joining us to discuss today. Called Disaster, this volume considers the years 1940 to 45, charting how the Third Reich fell from the peak of its power in 1940 to Hitler's death and the disastrous Battle of Berlin. Putting the questions to Frank was our
1: acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Fantastic. Um, So thanks so much for joining us again, Frank, to talk about the latest volume of of the Hitler years.
2: Yes, it's nice to be here. The second pass.
1: Yes, uh, and we last year we began um, by talking about the the chronological approach that that you take to to the, the this history. Um, but for those who are coming to this episode first or, or um, perhaps listeners new to the podcast, um I hope we could start perhaps by talking a little bit about that approach again and the time that's covered in this spe- this second volume.:
2: Well, when I thought about doing a general history of the Third Reich because I've written so many other books on aspects of the Third Reich. It struck me that, you know, there'd never been a book that just covered the actual period 1933 to 45. Most of the other books had gone way back into Hitler's early life and making the emphasis on Hitler and the early Nazi party and the Weimar period. So I thought I'll start it in 33 and end it in 1945. And many of the other books had been thematic. For example, Richard Evans' um, three-volume history had been thematic. He looked at different themes rather than going chronologically. The most famous um, chronological study is William Shire's famous, you know, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, but that's largely out of date, really. And he, he didn't have access to most of the archives that became available, you know, after the 1960s. Um, Then you've got the biographies, of course, which take many of them take a a chronological approach as well. But again, we have to emphasise that they are biographies. People keep coming back and saying, oh, what about Ian Kershaw? Well, Ian Kershaw's book is a biography. This book is a history of the Third Reich. It's a history, therefore, of Germany in that period. So it's it's much more broader. It's not just focused on, on Hitler. So what I decided then was that it had to be comprehensive and different. And so I decided to call it the Hitler Years, with the emphasis on years. Every chapter in the book, volume one, covers the period 1933 to 1939, and that's called Triumph. And volume two covers the period 1940 to 1945, and that's called Disaster. And each chapter covers a year in detail, and it's chronological. You know, the book was planned. It was very heavily planned. The planning of the book took took months because I had to construct the chronology of the whole period. So it goes into areas that you probably won't have heard of before because they're, they're generated by the chronology. So the chronology led to the research and then you build up the whole picture. I think, you know, people who read volume one, have said that they like it because, you know, you, you're getting a sense. If you're a general reader, I think it's great because you're not getting the kind of, you know, the academic sort of diversion of moving off into historiographical debates that you might not really understand or the thematic way of looking at it, which is much more analytical the way you would approach it. And again, the general reader will probably, they probably won't be able to keep up with that. So, With this, you know, I take you through the year, you know, in detail and in depth, really. And the first volume, as I said, ended. It didn't end like most of these. Most of these volumes, where they're split into two, stop in September. So what you get is 1933 to 1939, but it ends in September. And then the second volume starts in September as well. This one's different because this one ended the last volume ended on new year's eve 1939 with hitler at the peak of his triumph having just won in poland
1: so so before we go into a bit more into the into the history in each of these years um could we talk a little bit more about you know, as a historian who's written thematic um uh, books before, uh, who's obviously very familiar with this history. Um, what was it that you know? Did anything surprise you approaching it in this chronological storyboard way, or what did you you take from the, this process?
2: I think really what what it brought out because I had to sort of bring in much more chronological detail. It started to to emerge how much Hitler. Waited, you know, the, the actually the time that he waited before the war, you know, to make his moves in foreign policy, and also to see that the meetings that he had with people were also crucial in, in the chronological framework. So it started me thinking about Hitler, the way that he operated, much more in the public persona and the private persona. So I, I, I looked at all of his speeches and they, and I looked at all of the documents the secret documents that he was talking to diplomats and stuff like that. So you get kind of two Hitlers, the public Hitler, which before the war is talking about peace quite a lot, not war. And then, you know, the private Hitler who actually wants war. And it's quite clear that he's moving towards a series of plans that are going to lead with a clash with Britain and France. So I think that that came out much more clearly with this chronology than than I'd realised before. I think that in the second volume, Hitler really can no longer have this this, um, public lie, if you like. He can no longer be sort of um, Dr. Jekyll anymore because everybody knows that he's Mr. Hyde by now. So it really takes away a lot of the kind of surprise that he had before. Everyone now knows what he's up to. Everybody knows that he wants to dominate uh, the world by force and therefore what he says carries less weight with the allies. The allies aren't really interested in what he says. And even when, for example, after the defeat of Poland, he offers Britain and France a peace settlement. (laughs) Peace settlement. He's just destroyed Poland. And this peace settlement, it's a great settlement for Hitler as long as Britain and France, you know, accept um, you know, his defeat of Poland then, and he'll guarantee the British empire. But of course he doesn't realize, you know, Britain can't allow Germany to dominate the whole of Europe in return for a false promise that he's going to protect the empire. Cause nobody believes that he'll keep any of his promises anymore. So I think it, he, he has a lot of sort of his usual way of operating taken away by the start of the war.
1: So, with his usual way of operating, um, if we look at that separate from his um, his ideology, I suppose, it, without being too simplistic, it often might be assumed that Hitler had this plan of expansion and ultimately this plan of this horrific genocide that was laid out from the beginning, from, from his ideas laid out in Weinkampf. But um, as your volume lays out, that this this plan, grand plan doesn't, doesn't come together from that, does it?
2: I think what I, what I try to show, because it's shown in chronological detail, you can see that he does have a kind of, um, what can you play, a, a kind of framework which he's working on. But, of course, he's moved away from his framework because if you go back to Mein Kampf, you know, his main aim in Mein Kampf is to get an alliance with Britain, which he never got. And also to actually destroy the Soviet Union and to gain territory in the Soviet Union. And at the start of 1940, he's got a pact with Stalin. So he's actually in a pact with his biggest and most hated enemy. And he's fighting against, uh, someone, Britain, who he th- saw as a potential ally. So he, he's got the wrong, this is not the, the war that he wants. In other words, the events are shaping him and he has to react. He's got to react more to the events. Than he did before nineteen thirty nine, because A, the Allies are not gonna believe, you know, any of his rhetoric anymore, and B, he's He's got an alliance, not an alliance, but it's it's more or less an agreement with the Soviet Union. You know, if he wants to attack the Soviet Union, he's going to have to get out of that agreement. And therefore, the events are key because they push Hitler into what he's going to do next now. So in other words, instead of being the mastermind of the event, the master like, almost like Alfred Hitchcock, he's no longer the director of the events. He's more of an actor. He's reacting to what's happening in the world, and we see that quite a lot. He tries still to have some kind of plan, but he does move around quite a bit.
1: And, and th- this plan, I, I mean, much has been um, made, I suppose, of his um, his perhaps erratic decision making. And in fact, after the war, a lot of people said his decisions were down to Germany losing the war. But um, as you say, that this this isn't the whole picture.
2: No, I mean, what comes out in the book is that the the generals, the, the of course, the generals who appeared at the Nuremberg Trials, Hitler's generals, they gave a picture of the war, which was wholly one-sided, which was they were very efficient, they knew exactly what was going on, they could have won the war had Hitler not meddled in their decisions and destroyed them. I suppose one of them was uh, von Manstein. He wrote a book called Lost Victories. So by a title like that, you can tell that he thought Germany could win the war. And even at the Nuremberg trials, they kept saying, oh, we told him not to do this. Oh, we told him not to do that. But they went along with the with the um, attack on France, for example. They actually produced a detailed report which led to the attack on the Soviet Union. They also saw Slavs as second class citizens. They shared his anti Bolshevism as well. They were not against, you know, the atrocities that were going on in the Soviet Union, even though they tried to say they were not, they actually were. So I think in this book, you you see that a lot of the decisions actually are collective decisions. Hitler doesn't make all the bad decisions. He sometimes makes good decisions. A good example of this is in the chapter on 1940. When, it, when in January 1940, uh, uh, you know, a, a German reconnaissance plane crashes um, at a place called Mechelen, and uh, the pilot on board has the plans for the attack on the west called Case Yellow. And in those original plans, the attack was going to go through Belgium and then on to France, similar to 1914. So Hitler then is faced. It's called the Mechelen incident. Hitler's now faced with maybe he thinks we need to change this plan. And von Manstein, he comes up with a plan, a different plan. He says, well, now the Allies know that we're going to attack through Belgium. Let's attack through Belgium, but make it a diversion to another attack. And he suggests something very bold, which is to go through the Ardennes Forest, bridge the River Meuse, and then travel using tanks as the spearhead all the way to Dunkirk. And that plan comes off and Hitler adopts that plan. Now, Von Manstein actually was more or less, he was furloughed uh, after the uh, attack on Poland. He was, he was kept to the sidelines because his ideas were seen as too radical. He produced a number of memoranda suggesting this plan, and all the generals, the leading generals, said, oh, it won't work, It'll, it, won't, it won't work. You know, if we don't bridge the River Mays, then we're finished. And he said the Allies will know that we're going to go that way. And they, if they use their aircraft, they can destroy us getting across the river. But eventually he goes for that plan. Now that plan pays off and it wins the Battle of France. So that, may, that that's where Hitler gambles on a plan that grew out of this, what we said before. He didn't plan all this. The fact that the airplane went down and the plans came into the possession of the Belgians and then the Allies, he had to change the plan. So you see Hitler pretty good there at improvising. He improvised quite well, still carrying on what he'd done before the war started. So there you have the first victory. In a way, it's a tactical victory. It's not a military overwhelming victory. It's a tactical victory.
1: So these decisions, then, um, h- however they can be um, characterised or judged, um, they he's very, very focused on the military activity on, on all of the fronts that. that um, emerge throughout this, this conflict. What What's happening on the domestic side of things? How involved is he there?
2: He's not involved at all. In fact, you know, domestically, he takes hardly any interest in what's going on domestically. So what happens is the individual ministers and ministries, they start taking their own decisions. The individual Gauleiters, they also start taking their own decisions as well. The local Nazi parties, they also start taking their own decisions. So what you've got is kind of two wars. Hitler obsessed with the military planning and staying in his, you know, he has this um, military headquarters at Rastenberg, which is in East Prussia, and he stays there. He does move to another military headquarters at Vinicita for a brief period, but he's mostly in this military headquarters there for most of the war. He spends very little time in Berlin and he gives less and less speeches and as we know, speech making was one of the greatest ways that he built up his popularity. So the German public have a kind of figure who's a bit remote now. He's more remote. He's not out there. He's not he's not present at the government centre in Berlin. He's not taking the major decisions. I think something like 90% of all the ministerial decrees, Hitler didn't even sign them. They came from those ministries. So what you've got, a home you've got, kind of administrative chaos at home, which Hitler is not coordinating. He wasn't coordinating government before the war because he got rid of things like the cabinet. And that becomes a problem as the war emerges. With Hitler, you know, being pressed by people like uh, Goebbels and Goering to take more interest in the home front, and he's not really interested in the home front, he's obsessed by the war um war becomes an addiction to hitler in a way i think this is this is the point that i make about hitler hitler wants to win the battles as they come up but he doesn't have any real long-term strategy of what he's going to do It, it it's it's like a kind of um expansion without any objective what's the overall objective he doesn't ever seem to outline what the overall objective is he just carries on from one set of events to another set of events one sort of plan to another plan i mean he does exhaust the first plan before moving on to the next plan but then you're not sure you're never sure what is the aim which is pretty
1: at odds with that um idea of a master plan laid out in the 1920s and
2: exactly I mean, this is where the, the idea of him as a master planner falls down. It falls down over. A master planner is surely not indecisive. I mean, it's like going on holiday as a child with your dad. probably This probably did happen that he was driving the car and he thought, where shall we go today? And then everyone in the car says, let's go here, let's go there. And he's going, oh, I don't know, which where, where shall I go? And there's a little bit of that about Hitler. There's a little bit of that indecisiveness about him. Even though, of course, we see him as this clear minded dictator, but in the way that he carries out the decisions, there's a lot of kind of indecision and he will shift from one position to another.
1: Um, if we can go back to this, the point about devolution and delegation you just raised with the with the Gowlites uh, and things like that. Um, one thing that comes out in your account is that. Obviously, the final solution, while it was driven by Hitler's ideologies, his his racism, um, it, the the process, if that's the right word, of the, of the final solution was was not driven by Hitler. It was driven by many many of those below him. Well, Is I think in,
2: in this volume. As you will have noted, having read it, is that there's a hell of a lot on the Jewish question and the final solution. You know that is a big part of this volume. What goes on and what you what comes over is that you know Hitler is a kind of shadowy figure. You know sometimes we see him getting uh, details from Gables, don't we? Uh, sometimes Himmler he talks briefly to Himmler. Sometimes he makes a speech where he he's very anti-Jewish in the speech, but the actual minutiae of the policy is devolved. It's devolved down to Himmler and his SS empire and Heydrich and others. So in other words, you know, down to the local people, people on the spot, the men on the spot really in Poland and the Soviet Union. And they seem to take their own initiatives And so what we've got here is a situation which is similar to the way that the Nazi system works. There's a lot of devolvement of power to individuals. And those individuals feel as though they can make enormous decisions. A lot of enormous decisions seem to, I would say, evolve. They seem to evolve. It seems as though we're moving towards, you know, genocide against the Jews, but it's not coordinated. Then it starts to catch up to be coordinated i suppose the vansay conference in january 1942 and that chapter sort of covers that period. It's called War on the Jews. And then it shows how closely after that come, come these extermination camps at um, Treblinka, Sobibor and Belzec, and that's called Operation Reinhard. And interestingly enough, you know, 1942 is when all the killing of the Jews happens. Most of it happens in 1942. The biggest bulk happens then. But... With Hitler, you 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 only see it through speeches that he makes. You don't see him heavily involved. You also realise, you know, Goebbels only catches up with Van Say maybe six or seven weeks later. You know, there's no direct letter going to him. He obviously sees the minutes because we can see in his diary he starts to talk about it. So, and we can see from Hitler that he becomes very obsessed, can't we? As the book develops, we see Hitler becoming more publicly obsessed with the anti-Semitism issue. So, I try to show that the final solution wasn't just something that was dictated by Hitler from above as a kind of, you know, an order that then followed directly to people. I show that it developed, you know, it developed more organically from below And from the the devolution of power to people, this was the thing about the Nazi system, that it devolved power to people who then thought they had tons and tons of power themselves. And there's a famous phrase, uh, I think Ian Kershaw used it, that they work towards the Führer. But in a way, when you actually look at the decisions they take, there's no way that they can be working towards the Führer. They're working towards their own problem solving in a particular instance, And it may not be linked to ideology. It may be just, look, this ghetto is full. We need to get rid of some people from this ghetto. And someone says, yeah, we could take them to a a small place outside called Chelmno, and maybe we could get some people. And that becomes a solution to what is, in effect, an overcrowding problem. It's not like where they sit down and say, we must exterminate these Jews. It's that there's too many Jews here. We can't feed them. What do we do? And these are the problems, as we see, with the mass shooting in the Soviet Union. It starts out as mass shooting, and then Himmler visits one of these mass shootings in Minsk, and he starts to say he's not worried about the victims. He's worried about the psychological effect on the men who are carrying out the machine gunning of all these victims and says we must find a more humane way of doing it. Not more humane for the victims, but more humane for the perpetrators. And then we get towards, don't we, the extermination camp. And even in the extermination camps, there's no one system about how to kill people. You know, you have uh, at Auschwitz-Birkenau, you have cyclone beers used. But not exclusively, carbon monoxide is also used. And at these other extermination camps, it's normally a carbon monoxide engine that pipes in the the gas that kills them. So it's, it's not like a uniform way of doing things. I also show, and I think this is something new, is how much that the Holocaust was done on the cheap that really it was all very much a cost-cutting exercise. It wasn't actually, you know, organised by a government department. They didn't have tonnes and tonnes of money. It was actually supposed to be self-financing, and that was to be financed from the victims by taking their valuables, also by some of the prisoners they got off the trains that would be used as these sonder commando to do all the dirty work, and very little SS personnel. At a place like Treblinka you've only got 20 SS salaried men running a, running uh, you know a camp that kills a million people by outsourcing to all these different people for example they recruit Ukrainian guards into those uh, extermination camps Still to come on the History Extra
0: podcast
2: I think, you know, we, we, we can, looking at it through, through the Western way of looking at the war, we can end up, you know, with, you know, Tom Hanks wins the war, um, or, or we can end up with the Western idea of the war, where, where you know, you have a whole celebration of the, the period of the war, and you don't even mention the Soviet Union.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. I mean the the in incremental steps towards this 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 horror it laid out in the way it is it is is very, very very chilling um and you just mentioned it in your your answer there of um the horrors that happened more more broadly on the eastern front on the war in the east there were were obviously these two different fronts that hitler was um fighting on at you know at various points during the war um one was much more ideologically um important to him than the other
2: Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, what I make clear is that there really are, you've got to see Germany's war as two different wars, really. You know, there's the war that goes on with the Western allies, and that's fought, you know, uh, on the Geneva Convention principles, I mean, I know that you can laugh about the great escape and about, you know, the arguments over the chocolate and Richard Attenborough said, we haven't got our chocolate and where's our coffee and all of that kind of thing. But in actual fact, it's not very far from the truth because, you know, over 98% of British prisoners of war came home, whereas only 13% of Soviet prisoners of war made it home and they were starved and they were they weren't given red cross parcels there was no no red cross parcels the geneva convention wasn't applied to the soviet union on the basis that the soviet unions themselves hadn't signed the Geneva Convention. But, of course, Germany had signed the Geneva Convention and was also bound by it. And that came out of the Nuremberg trial, so that was a fallacious argument to say that they weren't bound. And in the West, you know, there was kind of more nobility in the West, the soldiers in the West. When when the soldiers of the West talk about the war, they, they talk in respectful terms about the Germans. You know, they're not horrific people who come into the town take all the women and children to the edge of town and then get them to dig a big pit and mow them down with, with machine guns. That doesn't happen in the West. You see the difference just purely in the use of, say, something like flamethrowers used massively in the attack on the Soviet Union in the German-Soviet war, but, but used very sparingly in the West and not against civilians. And we don't see the same – there's not the same order – to get all the civilians and kill them in the West. We don't see that at all. In Africa, it's a kind of, you know, it's almost like a nice cricket match, really. You know, and we have Rommel. You know, Rommel comes out of the war quite well because he was one of the few German generals, you know, who didn't engage in atrocities because he wasn't on the Eastern Front. Of course, you know, had he been on the Eastern Front, I'm pretty sure he would have sanctioned atrocities. I think we sort of give this idea that because he wasn't there, you know, that he wouldn't have sanctioned atrocities, whereas all the generals who were on the Eastern Front did, who were very similar to him. And in fact, who knew him quite well. So I think we do have two wars and it's much more brutal. I mean, I think that when you look at the, the two conflicts, I mean, some of, some of the battles on that Eastern Front, the brutality on both sides, it's, it's like the Wild West. And it's not just that the, you know, that the the Germans are awful, but the Soviets are willing to be awful as well. So we have on both sides, we have instances of, of rape. And towards the end, we have lots of instances of, the Soviet Red Army engaging in rape. And we have instances as well, don't we, uh, uh, with the German army, you know, of 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 mass executions as they go into these towns. And even later in the war, they operate a scorched earth policy as well, which they don't do in the West. So yes, there are two wars. And I try to, you know, give equal treatment to the two wars so that you can see the differences in brutality between them.
1: Yes, uh, and I think uh, the, as well as... The obviously those those stark difference in, in the brutality and the way in which they were fought. Um, I was really interested uh, about the idea of reappraising the significance of events. I think you you say that certainly in a British in terms of British or American views of popular history, D Day takes massive significance. Yet at that time, Hitler was very much focused on the the Eastern Front. Not not there for him.
2: I think you know we 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 can looking at it through through the western way of looking at the war we can end up you know with you know Tom Hanks wins the war um or or we can end up with the western idea of the war where where you know you have a whole celebration of the the period of the war and you don't even mention the soviet union um and the differences in the casualty rates are, are absolutely enormous between the numbers that die on the eastern front and the numbers that die on the on the Western Front and even for the Germans themselves. I mean, I think I mentioned, you know, the four out of every five German soldiers who were killed were killed by a soldier of the Red Army. And I think, yeah, Hitler started in nineteen, the end of 1943. He started to realise that the Western theatre of the war was going to become more important, although he didn't really prepare enough for the potential attack uh, in the West, as he should have done. Uh, and also because German intelligence, which actually operated very poorly, German intelligence, you know, didn't spot the D-Day landing. You know, German intelligence didn't spot the uh, the Battle of Kursk. Uh, you know, German intelligence was very poor in Stalingrad and, and in Operation Uranus, which was the uh, amazing Soviet encirclement of uh, German troops around Stalingrad and German intelligence didn't spot that. So German intelligence was very poor. I think what I try to show is yes the allied contribution it was an alliance. I mean I do make that quite clear that it was an alliance and you, you we need to we need to bring in the Soviet dimension because without the Soviet dimension and just having books that look at the west then we don't see how big the war in the East was. And I think in this book, you can actually look, for example, I show all of the detail of uh, the D-Day landings in, in great depth in the Battle of France, but I also show in enormous detail Operation Bagration, which is the huge Soviet attack that takes place th- three weeks after the D-Day landing, and it's a huge attack. It pushes the German army back 300 miles It destroys Army Group Centre, which many would say is the greatest army grouping of the German army. And it really, you know, by the end of, of, you know, sort of August 1944, the Russians are are at one side of the Volga. They've they've moved that far, whereas the British and the Americans haven't got over the Rhine yet. So you can see that I try to show the two wars. And also, I also show (laughs) probably... uh, You know, for the British reader, that the Americans actually, as you, as you can see from the latter part of the book, it's actually the Americans who make the big breakthrough, isn't it? After the, after the D-Day landing. And they also make the big breakthrough over the bridge at Rahmargen. And then they make the big breakthrough, don't they, all the way. And they get Montgomery and they send them, don't they, to Hamburg, sort of, Pension him, him off, in a way. And I think that was quite interesting to see how much the Americans... I, sh- I show how the Americans start to learn about war. And in a way, the Americans and the Soviets are similar in the war, I think. The Soviets start to learn about war as the war goes on and start to get better at it. And then they start to get better at strategy. And it's same with the Americans. You know, in North Africa, they're, they're hopeless. And even the, you know, the, the British say they're terrible, you know. Uh, but gradually, even in Italy, they don't perform much better. But then, after the you know the D-Day landing and after the after the amazing breakout uh, from the bridgehead and then the movement that won the Battle of France. After the fillet's pocket, you know, it's the Americans who make the big, you know, the big move, you know, Omar Bradley, the American commander, you know, he could say he didn't want to rub it into Montgomery, did he? But let's face it, he actually made makes the big move that wins the battle of, uh, battle of France. So I do try to show the two wars as they go on and develop. And I think, you know, um, this is what made it really difficult to write. I've got to say to, to you now, you know, trying to hold all these events together is really, really difficult. Because you know, you've got to move from North Africa through to Russia over to the Western Front. Uh, Hitler's own, you know, the bomb plot in 1944, you know, you've got an amazing, a lot of, you know, and and the bomb attacks. There's a lot of detail there as well about the bomb attacks on Germany and how the German people reacted to those bomb attacks. You know, there's a lot on Hamburg attacks, isn't there? There's also a lot on the Berlin attacks and, of course, Dresden. So I tried to create this big panorama, really, in which the reader can actually start to make judgments as well because, you know, I don't I don't like that kind of writing that sort of tells you what to think. I like to sort of lay it out. So you say, look, look at the details here. Look at the statistics and then, you know, and then make up your own mind here. Um, if you're being driven through that kind of narrative, you can do that. You know, the the kind of analytical I would see it. I think my book is not not a story. It's a narrative uh, with explanation and interpretation, so I'm I'm interpreting what's happening all the time. I'm being a historian all the time, but I think the reader themselves can glean from this what they think about the events and how it's developing in that way.
1: Uh, and you you do write that that contrary to perhaps a popular belief historical knowledge of this period of the Third Reich isn't complete um, and there are new sources emerging have emerged since big narrative histories before and, and will um, why do you think there's such a pervasive opinion that that we know everything we need to know
2: I blame I don't blame you because you're doing a great job there <laughs> at History extra I blame you know things like the history channel. These sort of um, oh, the very simplistic uh, narratives that go in these programs. You've even got programs as well that try to say Hitler, you know, survived the war. So you've got conspiracy theories coming into it. You've got people who don't accept the Holocaust, Holocaust deniers. Um, I think this sort of pernicious Hitlerism where, you know, Hitler-centric view of the war, everything was Hitler, um, and then we don't, we, we, so there's no place, there? There's no place for Operation Bagration. Tell me, tell me a BBC One documentary or BBC Two documentary about the German Soviet war. I've never seen one. You know, I've never seen one. And if you do see one on the History Channel, it's so puerile and, you know, that, that they can't be bothered to get anybody in to do some kind of research on it. So what do they do? Well, it's easier, isn't it, to take the original narrative. Uh, you know find a, you know find 10 talking heads and tell the same story I mean I've been in these I mean, I couldn't say this but I've been in these programs and then they and then I say to them things like you know why don't you look at this why don't you look at that and they say oh but that's too complex the, the audience don't want that you know when the minute you start to say maybe Hitler wasn't the, you know as sort of dominant as you think and maybe that he was more of a vacillating figure uh, and maybe that he just went to pieces they don't want to know that you see so i blame that i think that it's uh it's that narrative that that's the problem that we've got in history we've almost got a hitler sort of um hitlo-centric channel and a Hitlocentric group of sort of histories that are that are sort of just concentrating on him
1: the, the focus shifts in 1943 44 and we begin to see this decline um and and Hitler's uh loss of control, his retreat. Um, what can you say about this period and its relevance?
2: I think what we start to see in the latter part of the book, especially, you know, 1945, the chapter is called "Funeral in Berlin. And we start to see that Hitler, in spite of what people have said, you know, Hitler didn't really know what was coming. There's a great little sort of discussion he has with his uh, secretary, isn't there? You know, where she says, you know, what do you think is going to happen to national socialism? And he says... It's finished. You know, it won't come back. If it comes back, he said, it won't be the same and it might not come back for a hundred years. Now there's a man who kind of, you can see that when he's sort of a bit lucid, Hitler, maybe he tells the truth. And I think there he does tell the truth that really he thinks the game is up. And then, we see Goebbels starting to suggest to him, you know, why not have a, why not don't we broker a peace settlement with uh, Stalin? And then he says, why is he going to want a peace, and he's quite clear headed of the body. he says, why is he going to want a peace settlement with me when he's winning the war? And he said, as for Roosevelt and Churchill, there's no chance that they're going to have a peace settlement with me. They've been spent the whole war attacking me. They're hardly likely, you know, they have to think about their public opinion." More And then we see him gradually, don't we, disintegrating in his health. And he ends up, doesn't he, in the bunker. And I suppose then, you know, you could say that, you know, he won't face up to his defeat. But in a way, he sort of, uh, you know, we have recent examples of people who are finding it difficult to facing up to defeat. No names here. But... What we see with Hitler is he gradually does accept that, you know, his defeat's going to come and that the Allies are going to, you know, the Red Army is going to come in to the bunker and probably will arrest him and he doesn't want that to happen. So I suppose it's his last will and testament, I think, is very interesting. And there's a great part of the book where Travel Young describes, you know, the, the actual moment when Hitler comes to her office to dictate the final will and testament. And she says, here I was. What a person to be in history. Here I am in front of a typewriter waiting to have dictated the explanation of why Germany went to war. She said she waited for him to say, and he said, it wasn't my fault. (laughs) She said, that's what he said. Those were his first words. I didn't want this war. It was caused by these Jewish conspirators, he said, who control Britain and control France. And he said then they control Stalin and they control Roosevelt and the Jewish conspiracy control the whole thing. They caused the war. I was trying to do something for humanity by getting rid of the Jews. So right to the end, we kind of then, we've been talking, haven't we, throughout this talk about the plan, what was the plan? But we've missed something, I think, all the way through uh, our discussion of Hitler. is What was his essence? What was his real essence? And yes, it was war. He was addicted to war. But in a way, that was his kind of recreation, wasn't it? That was, that was his drug of choice, if you like. But what was his essence? Antisemitism. Anti-Semitism, as this book shows, is Hitler's true ideological core. And that's what we need to accept and understand. And of course now, in the modern world, it's very important that this is brought out even more clearly.
0: That was Frank McDonough. The Hitler Years, Disaster 1940-45, is published in the UK by Head of Zeus and is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Uwitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when David Hepworth will be speaking about the Beatles in America.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.